Welcome comrades to another edition of Trist with Vinay. In this episode, I'm speaking with Atish Padi, and we talk about the myth of overpopulation, the not-so-free market economics of India, and the protectionist attitude of the Indian government, Victor Frankl, Albert Camus, and the importance of meaning in one's life. Atish is a recent undergrad from Christ University in Journalism, Psychology, and English. He works for a Bangalore-based think tank called the Takshashal Institution. He's also a blogger, writer, and a host for the Sofi podcast. Links to all of his works and socials will be available in the description. This is Free With Meaning. Ken, hey. Hi, what's up? Uh, good, how are you? Um, I know you don't know me, but um, I'm Vinay. <laughs> Yeah, hi, Vinay, I'm Atish. <laughs> Atish. How do you pronounce your last name? Is it Paddy or Paddy? Uh, it's Paddy. Paddy, okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, um, I saw, uh, I came across your profile because I was, t- I was talking to Tanya uh, some time ago about wanting to start a podcast and whatever, and she's like, oh, I have a friend who uh, already does something like that. I'm like, oh, I should check it out. And then yeah. she obviously showed me a profile and... Uh, I listen to the podcast. Yeah, how do you like it? How do you like doing your podcast? Oh, right. Uh, it's a lot of fun uh, because it's on something that I uh, thoroughly enjoy, which is uh, philosophy. And I do it with a friend of mine uh, uh, called Atharva, who is, who is in the same batch as I was in another class. So both of us were deeply interested in uh, philosophy and therefore we decided to explore this in more detail but we do not, not go about in the sense that we do not look at philosophy through we look at uh, issues of importance and then try to analyze them through philosophy and we believe that makes it more accessible to people because most of philosophy has been buried in obscure academic journals in jargon that no one understands and for us, philosophy is something that needs to go beyond that. And people should be able to uh, know it as it is, because it's a very beautiful thing and it allows you to examine your life. And it should not just be limited to obscure journals. So that's why we try to generalize it. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, I, I mean, I of all people should know that trying to read philosophy in any sort of way, even if something is, even if something is uh, like foundational as... Uh, Plato's Republic can go right over your head really easily and then don't even get me into Kant or Hume or uh, all those big fellas where you read and you're like what the fuck did I just read none of those I know what those words mean individually but put them in that string I have no idea what you're talking about and yeah no you're right um yeah, no, I think I think it's really cool. I, I, I like the idea of your podcast where you're you you sort of talk about like general general and general issues, but for you're taking a little, a little bit more of a philosophical approach to it. Yeah, I think it is cool. Um, yes, plus we look at a lot of Indian philosophy because um, there's not a lot that that we know about it. And Atharva is very good at it because he, he has read a lot of these uh, Hindu scriptures and the ancient Indian scriptures and uh, both Buddhist and, and, and Hindu. So he understands 
a lot of these uh, philosophies and philosophical schools of thought that a lot of us are not aware of. So I think that adds more value to the podcast because he can always bring in those perspectives about about issues from an Indian point of view. Yeah, sorry, Anshok. Oh no 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 you're good you're good uh yeah no you're right um I found I I'm, I'm I'll have to admit I'm not I haven't very much looked into Indian philosophy because I I find Eastern philosophies a little bit more harder to understand harder to grasp uh, as opposed to the Western philosophy so I remember uh, reading about the pre-Socratics and the so uh, after the post-Socratic philosophers and then trying to like compare and contrast with eastern philosophies and i'm just like i don't know what the eastern philosophy is saying it's a lot i find it they have a lot they have a lot to do with the transcendence of the self and being one with the nature whereas the western philosophers are a little more analytical they're they're reductionist in some way yeah um oh i have to tell you I, yeah i have to tell you i loved your uh your your essay on overpopulation um overpopulation is the real problem and not under governance uh, and it's not a real issue it is really under governance but i have a little i have a little uh thing about it though um you mentioned in the essay that how thomas robert maltus was sort of he didn't take into account the idea of what sorry not the idea but the impact of human intelligence and where we can go with investment, as far as how far we can go with our human intelligence in terms of advancements in technology and just proper use of resources. But the guy wrote the thing in 1798. He couldn't have possibly have known what, what the extent of it is, right? Uh, I mean, Morse code wasn't even invented by then. Uh, but, I, but I agree with you on the point that um, the people have sort of abused his his written work and sort of continue continue to use that as like oh we need to uh, sort of stop uh, stop telling people to have more babies you know stop procreating because we're running out of resources and whatever I do agree with you on that point for sure but what like how did you even come across that because that's that's not something a lot of people even look at. Right, because uh, last week, uh, the Monday before this one, uh, what happened was I came across a report by SRS, which is uh, the institution that conducts the census in India. So they, they, before conducting the census, they do a sample survey, uh, which, which is a trial census in a way, so that they can set their sample and be ready for the census, which is uh, supposed to happen next year, 2021, right? Their uh, report came in uh, and it was published uh, and I read about it and I discovered that a lot of what we think about India in terms of population is just entirely wrong, right? Because uh, the, uh, in the report they said that India's total fertility rate currently is 2.2. Now total fertility rate is the number of uh, children a woman is likely to have in her lifetime, right? And so uh, the total fertility rate uh, in order for the population to replace itself. For example, if we have 100 people now and after a generation for that population to remain 100, the total fertility rate should 
be 2.1 in developing nations because uh, we have mortality rates and everything so that's point uh, one change right, right, and since right. it takes two people to make one child if two people make two children then the population will be replaced exactly right in india the total fertility rate is 2.2 which is only marginally higher than 2.1 right which means that india's population has begun already to slow down so we are not growing as fast as people would have us believe and in fact uh, there are only eight states in india out of the 20 uh, eight that we do uh, 28 states that we have only eight of them have a total fertility rate above 2.2 14 states have a total fertility rate that is below 2.1 which means their population will start to decrease because 2.1 as i said is a replacement rate right when the population starts replacing itself so in these 14 states mostly south indian states and west bengal and odisha and a couple of other states for them it is it's very likely that they will start shrinking. Their population will start shrinking while states like UP and Bihar are still growing in their population. Uh, another finding was that India still, like, India was touted as this next big thing because of our young population, right? So more than 50% of Indian population was under the age 25. According to the recent report uh, that came out from SRS, uh, now, 53% of India is over the age of 25, only 47 are under the age of 25, which means that what we call India's demographic dividend, because we have so many young people, there are so many ways in which India could become the next superpower, because you have the manpower and, and the human resource of so many young people. So for the next 20 years, you're supposed to have a revolution. All of that is going away, because now it is 47%. In the next 20 years, India still does not have a social security net. So India would already have started to become an older nation because people that are 25 now would be 45 then, right? And India has not invested enough in education. Our education is in tatters. Our economy after growing at 8-9% in 2007-2010 is now growing at 3-4%. to So nothing indicates that India is going to become that superpower. And yet people continue to talk about as if overpopulation is a problem because uh, that comes, I think, from the belief that it is humans that are responsible for their own misery, which is not always true, right? And it also stems from the belief that humans are somehow uh, supposed to be, uh, the citizens are somehow supposed to be accountable to the state when it should be the other way around. So in 2019, Independence Day, uh, August 15, Narendra, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi in his speech said that India's population is growing too fast and that's why India is not able to become a developed nation, which is just, excuse my French, bullshit. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's the government's duty to ensure that everyone has basic amenities. That is the only reason why the government exists, why the state exists, right? You cannot ask people to not do the most basic thing that they're supposed to do, which is try to further their family, telling them that it's because of you that we are unable to do something. What sort of excuse is that? Right? Because you are blaming people for your own feelings, which is just sad. And that was my argument. I'm not saying that everyone should have eight children because that is just wrong for your own economic interest, that right? everyone would be poor right, in that right. sense. But that should be an individual's choice. You cannot blame overpopulation as something, as something responsible for our misery. Plus, the very term overpopulation suggests that there is some sort of limit to population, right? And there is not, because 
who decides where that arbitrary limit is what is overpopulation there cannot be too many humans because obviously as i said human resources human resources is the most important resource in 1960s the world was at the brink of starvation uh, productivity was very low so an economist uh, in his book uh, the population bomb wrote that the 1970s 1980s 21st century would be characterized by people starving and then came in uh, the green revolution across the world right uh, the hybrid the varieties of crops were introduced and then productivity shot up today we know that due to green revolution uh, there was a lot of environmental damage so now people are trying to move to gm crops uh, genetically modified crops which will require much less fertilizers so every single time humans have some sort of trouble uh, staring at the uh, staring them in the eye they innovate and that is the most important thing so resources will not, never run out because the ultimate resource is human resource and if we don't run out those resources won't because we have immense ability to innovate and think out of the box and make things work which is why i think climate change will also be solved which is why i'm actually an optimist about it you know um yeah i i i agree with you on the point that there are some uh, alarmist views uh regarding just the general condition of what the world is and it is we are definitely i mean we see the world through our eyes we're anthros and we if you were we consider the whole world from you look at the whole world from an anthropocentric view where we decide Well, I guess in this case, for our own self-interest, we decided we, we, we set the arbitrary scales, right? Everything is arbitrary. We are the arbitrators of what the world is at, and and everything comes. We are we are quite literally the center of our our own our own universe. So I agree with you on that point, but I want to give some credit to the alarmists in the sense that let's say, for example, for for the author that you mentioned who, uh, who wrote the population bomb, or even Thomas Malthus, uh, I think. There is some. His name is okay. Paul Ehrlich. The population bomb. The author of population bomb. Yes, Paul Ehrlich. Yes, Paul Ehrlich. Environmentalist Paul Ehrlich. Yeah, German expert. Yes, yes, that's the one. Uh, for for alarmists like him, I think it is a good idea to bring those uh, issues to the forefront, only because it incentivizes our advancements, right? So, so in that case, I am I am not as concerned about people sort of. Uh, looking at something as simple as oh running out of resources and trying to use that as an incentive to to innovate and to further our advancement but uh, i agree with you on the point where that's not the end all be all overpopulation is not uh, we no, can't my problem is uh, right go ahead no please go ahead yeah uh, so i was saying uh, my problem is not with the fact that he wrote the book obviously he uh, and obviously as you said alarmist view do promote like you need a, some sort of doomsday in order for the optimist to shine right for people right. to show that humans are capable of saving themselves my problem is how these kinds of alarmist views influence state policy i have not private like free markets and private enterprises flourish nonetheless that's not my concern right. my concern is how the state reacts to it the thing that drove china in uh, under mao uh chairman mao to a uh, start its one child policy and right. what happened due to the one child policy was scores of families uh chinese families left china they were smuggled out they went to the united states and in the united states they had four five six children right 
they moved to hong kong which was then uh, a free state right because yeah. Uh, england yeah autonomous region because the united kingdom signed the treaty with china saying that they will be autonomous till of uh, a given date they moved to other places where the law did not exist and they started making more babies and the people that remained what happened in the subsequent years what is happening today is chinese populations uh, they're not growing obviously and uh, they are an aging population so the people that the government has to support who do not have direct income who are living on pensions is increasing and china which today is trying so hard to become like a major superpower is seeing that the time is running out which is why they have become so alarmist because it makes no sense for china in this market economy when most of supply chains have gone out of china right because of the coronavirus and they no longer nobody trusts china anymore they're going to vietnam uh, most uh, most supply chains and their economy is in tatters and yet at the same time they have tried to uh, attack india right they have uh, increased the tensions with india they have uh, increased militarization in south china sea and then uh, they were hostile against donald trump and they had a full blown trade war against australia so at once they pissed off all of their enemies now they are also trying to uh, take hong kong like they're trying to basically yeah, yeah. yeah snatch hong kong uh, and like they have a very draconian law imposed over there so at once they're trying to do so many things even they know that the time is running out because their people will no longer rule the world because they're all aging and that is what a thing can do and the number of people that died because of like the number of uh, I, there was a documentary on vice or uh, vice and one on history tv i remember watching them and it showed that lot of uh, children second children under uh, the mao uh, regime a lot of people had two children but the second child had nothing like they had no identity they were kept in like the house all the time they had no identity and after like for them to earn money they had to take up fake identities and there was a lot of corruption involved and the thing is people will not listen to the state right there will be more corruption because you can't tell people what to do or what not to do because humans are autonomous what instead happens is corruption increases more people begin to suffer so it's much better to let's just be honest and just reject the overpopulation myth right yes promote family planning tell people how many people you should have but not coerce them to do it it should, it should not be law you want to educate people sure go ahead like don't have too many babies that you can't feed or whatever that's that's great but whenever you make something into a law it incentivizes corruption because a law yeah. if a law if a law is so oppressive that it decides <clears throat> how many children you can have then people will find a way to break it because no yeah. nobody wants to be controlled it's as simple as that right. yeah. and yeah no you're absolutely right um and i think we've now you're seeing sort of this uh shift from where we as you mentioned earlier we're not necessarily running out of resources but we're we're in a place where we can better utilize our resources and we're actually going into a state of abundance right and i want to use exactly. this as a, I, I people, use this as, yeah yeah i was i just want to use this as a segue to uh, our actual conversation uh, actual topic of conversation we decided yeah. earlier but when we go into a state of abundance as elon musk famously said we will go in a, uh, in a state of abundance through automation right which is already happening in the states and in canada and many many first world countries now what happens when you when we uh, go into state of abundance 
Uh, right. So yes, uh, we are. Uh, we're beginning to get in that state of abundance. More people in the world today are obese than are starving. Right. And no one could have imagined that. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, look at the look at poverty in America. Poor people in America are more likely to be fat, more likely to die of heart disease because they eat junk food. In India, poverty looks entirely different. Like poverty here is starvation, <laughs> and like poor people in America have cars and ACs and all that. Anyway, yeah. So. so the uh, what i think the age of abundance will do in a sense is obviously it depends on how this abundance comes about right because if automation is supposed to take up like if product productivity increases due to automation which it is likely to there are two ways things can go one is uh, everyone has is much better off because you know the productivity gets distributed in some way so no one has to work right the other is only certain people are laid off and only certain people are reap all the benefits of automation and if we live in the second in the latter kind of world then i think we are doomed because it it only creates more social conflict because the first jobs to go would be the ones that are semi skilled or unskilled right like truck drivers or something like which are which are always jobs of high risk because you know many people die because of you know car accidents or that and yet people continue to do those because that is the best thing that they can do with their skill set so it is livelihood for people and they will keep getting replaced on the other hand jobs will increase in a highly specialized industry where you require a lot of skills and you have to be extremely smart and have certain environments that allow you to flourish in those situations so some jobs would be lost but people that lose those jobs will not be able to get the newer jobs so that that'll be very very sad because there'll be an entire section of society that will be a second class citizens because they would have no money right they might have to live off social security because most advanced countries have social security and i don't see this happening in developing countries anytime soon because in india we have 50% people still in agriculture and agriculture has does not require more than 20% people in india currently so in india things will continue as it is because of vote bank politics so in india i don't see this happening but in the advanced world when these keeps on happening there'll be a lot of strife so i mean i don't think these george floyd uh, rights riots are anything if uh, automation happens these are going to be blown to like 20x oh, yeah, yeah, I, the thing because yeah, now yeah, because here it was race which is which is very important which has been important in the american context but as andrew yang has been saying in the the president uh, nominee right uh, candidate if automation comes to be and it happens lopsidedly where people lose jobs then it will be more of like a working class revolution you know and not in a good way at all because there'll be a lot of violence and the, the american system which is built on the ideas of liberty and on democracy where biz, where business is kind of a religion it does not bode well at all because i think the entire country will come collapsing down because you can't have an entire section of people that have nothing so what will happen if you have a lot of abundance some people will have lives some people will live extravagant lives others will be forced to have nothing live off social security and live on drugs i that that'll be very sad yeah uh so i wonder uh to me personally i see 
I see universal basic income as the solution. And I'm a huge proponent for that. Uh, but what do you think about it? What do you think about UBI? I mean, I'm not American, so I'm not I don't really know a lot because I don't think in India, not anybody has bought up UBI at all, obviously, because I don't think anyone is even considered AI seriously outside of tech industries for specialized roles. So from like, as a state, as a government based approach, no UBI has like, no one has even mentioned it. But what I do know of UBI is from the little bit that I have heard from on like whenever I follow the American news cycle or whatever. And Andrew Yang has been a proponent of the same, right? And from what I understand, it is that uh, people would be provided uh, monthly income uh, so that they don't have to work, right? When automation happens so that they can sustain themselves and do what they want to do with their life. I think that is broadly what he's trying to say. Although I do not understand how that yeah. will work out logistically because how is the government going to source that money? Will you, uh, so that has been my problem. How are you going to source that money? And that is, I think a lot of conservatives have been questioning Andrew Yang on as well. But, yeah. So anyway, so how Andrew Yang has proposed his plan for UBI is essentially setting up a VAT tax for, so value added tax for luxury items. So not necessarily increasing the cap marginal tax rate on the top 1% because in Europe, they tried something like that. They tried a wealth tax, but they reversed, went back to, they, they took it out because they just realized it wasn't sustainable as far as what the 1% the of the top rich would, would do with that money. And they, they figured out some loopholes and they, they, the Europe, the EU repealed the, the wealth tax. So in a setting like America or Canada, if or any country for that matter, UBI would be, I as I see it, would be best if it's coupled with something like a VAT tax, and then maybe maybe a little bit of a higher marginal tax rate on the on the top one percent, where I don't know, I I believe the, the marginal tax rate in Canada is at around 40 percent on the top one percent. I see that as as a non-issue there, because Canada's fine. The Canada's millionaires are sorry. The billionaires are fine. They're not necessarily too uh, angry or they're not upset about it. So in that case, that's fine. It what it, how it really comes into play is how it's not that countries like America and Canada or most first world countries don't have any money. They have the money. They have the money. In two thousand eight, for the two thousand eight recession, America bailed Wall Street. It was. A two trillion dollar bailout. It was only a week ago when America bailed out the churches of America for fourteen billion dollars. So it's not necessarily they don't have the money; it's how they use the money. So if they can funnel that money into the hands of the people, I can see that as an as an absolute solution for a lot of the problems with the working class and like getting rid of jobs. Now, in the terms of India, now with India. I don't see automation being as much of a problem as you said in the near future, but that's not to say people aren't starving or poor or they're in terrible living conditions. So I think there will be some merit in giving people the money, like handing out that money to them. So what they would do with that money, I mean, and then the question is like, oh, if we were to give that money, the state is losing money. Well, what does that money go back into? It goes back right back into the economy. 
sounds like they're keeping it in there under their bed for so they can grow because their mind isn't gonna, isn't gonna grow so they're gonna use it anyway so i think the solution there is to help the people because we are going into this state of abundance where at least in the at least in first world countries at the moment where the working class is uh is being neglected or is being rejected neglected by uh the fruits of uh the one percent now it does lead the problem of what about people when they have that abundance financially and um and in terms of resources right so you have resources uh we're going like people are let's say people aren't hungry they're not starving and then they have money to live and have a roof under their house like what happens then are they going to stop working or would they not and what would that mean for people do you think that people are just going to i don't know be lazy not do anything uh get high get drunk well, what do you think about that okay yeah so there are multiple layers to this question first of all i mean um, uh, in america i think uh, obviously ubi could be a solution if i think the most sustainable solution than taxing would be if productivity does increase in automation what it can do is uh, the gains are distributed amongst people right just like mm-hmm. today we get money from jobs then if automation does all of it you don't have to pay people salaries right and that can just be distributed amongst people according to uh, their needs or whatever right yeah. or the skill set so that way you don't have to tax anyone because you're there's still productivity but there is no one being paid for that productivity because uh, currently the market works in the way that i provide you a service and you pay me money for that then because you don't have to pay ai money what you mm-hmm. can do is just pay people money because ai is producing something and you and there's a lot of it. that is just more obvious to me because the problem with higher taxes is it's unsustainable in the european union what happened was because of the strong labor laws high tax rates today the unemployment rate in uh, europe is around 20% which is really sad Uh, yeah, in the united states on the other hand the un- unemployment rate is less than half of it so yes the united states yeah. has a lot of problems but as a market that there are much many more jobs in the united states than there are in europe so when yeah. whenever you increase taxes uh, companies and people running them are incentivized to leave those countries right mm-hmm. in europe they moved away to countries like there are because you live in a world where there are certain countries that are very high tax rates and certain countries like uae right dubai yeah. has zero income tax why wouldn't you just go there if yeah. you are in the 1% you can literally go anywhere you want so yeah. if so high high tax rates are not sustainable unless everyone has high tax rates right every country so what should i think it would be a much better one if uh, plus i mean how sustainable is it that you keep taxing the 1% because their wealth also runs out at some point right and mm-hmm. for them to keep creating more, more wealth and more jobs they need something in return uh, so mm-hmm. what happens with increasing uh, taxes and that's what every like uh, free market libertarian says is whenever you increase taxes people are more incentivized to just not pay taxes that's why there is corruption right Right. That's why there is more and more regulation. So, as you said, in the European Union, they had to cut out the wealth tax because people just found ways to bribe someone and not mm-hmm. have to pay taxes. Because if you have yeah. to pay, say, forty thousand dollars in taxes, you can just pay thousand dollars to 
some bureaucrat at some time and they'll be like fine i don't pay me the 40000 because i'm getting 1000 from my pocket so you are exempted so in a way it's very unsustainable because it increases the bureaucracy and all that so i think a more sustainable way would be to just distribute the gains of the output like we do currently but instead of yeah. humans it's just the ai so we we, we just sit at home but whatever productivity comes out of the comes out of ai does not go only to the companies that produce them but comes to all right. of us so the companies keep their profit margin and we all get mm-hmm. everything else or right. they might de- or what can happen is most products can become free and i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon that might happen right. say another 100 years economy will be entirely revamped in such a way that like what would be the point of money if the no there is no one to spend or earn it right mm-hmm. we have money today because it's a mean of means of transaction between two people but if you if you have artificial intelligence doing most of the things people would no longer have to pay each other money because most of it can be done by ai that can just communally be run so that way we will see a very different marketing i think that's one of our fantasies hopefully that will happen that way we, you won't have money yeah, and like you won't yeah. have money and things yeah. would be free in the sense that it's just common exchange as usual but everything has been automated so nobody has to be paid in money terms and in india uh, uh, i think the i mean paying people is not a solution at all because in india the state capacity is horrible right uh, in india the state is state tries to do a lot of things and it has capacity to do nothing right so in india mm-hmm. you paying is not a problem at all in india the problem is the precise opposite in india there are not enough jobs so how, how do you create jobs so what happened with india is all countries that go from being poor to rich uh, start with an agricultural economy become a manufacturing economy and then go to services in india because india has such great inequality of access what happened was india is still a largely agricultural country but for a lot of people like myself we are part of a very big, big growing services industry therefore the manufacturing industry has remained tiny and manufacturing is the most easy way for poor people to make it to the cities because how can a farmer go from being a farmer to a computer scientist or from a farmer to even a teacher it's very different right so what they can do is the skills they have in farming can be utilized in manufacturing for doing those routine boring automated jobs right where you i don't know do inventory and uh, take care of all that it is boring but it also is a way for you to make it into an economy that is far more promising because now if you are a first generation manufacturing worker you have much better standards of living than a farmer right and that allows you and you live in a city or a smaller city and that allows your children to have access to better education and that way you make it to the services industry and over generations the wealth increases china did precisely that china is a big manufacturing hub all countries in the world did that united kingdom during the industrial revolution was a huge manufacturing hub united states right was a huge manufacturing hub so you cannot forego manufacturing and directly make the services especially in a country like india where so many of the people are poor and our state capacity is so bad which is why there needs to be there need to be more jobs and for more jobs what needs to be done is the state needs to roll itself back for example in india today uh, ease of doing business is impossible how do you create more jobs right companies have to come in and invest in the country but they have no incentive to invest because 
what happens is they will invest in something. You promise them certain tax terms. Eventually, you tax them more. It's called tax terrorism, right? And it took off under uh, the previous uh, UPA regime under Pradam, when Pradam Mukherjee was the finance minister. So you just exhort a lot of taxes from people, uh, from corporate corporations. In India, I think the marginal tax rate is 42%. And in a developing country, 42% should not be a tax rate at all. Because in developed nations, fine. You want to solve inequality, great. You want to tax people more. In a developing nation, the problem is not inequality. The problem is poverty. You have to make people not starve first in order for them to be equal to someone else. So starvation is the first thing. And how do you not starve them? That you give them jobs so that they can look after themselves. And how do you create jobs? The government cannot give people jobs, right? We are not in a communist country where everything is owned by the government. The market has to provide people jobs. And why would the market come to India? If you have high tax rates, if you have a bureaucracy that is impossible to... I'll give you an example. In Delhi, you need... In, uh, I, read, uh, an, I read an article recently which said, in Delhi, for you to start a business of any sort, you need 40 documents. 40. But in Delhi, for you to... Okay. To buy a gun, you need 19 documents. So if you start, for example, uh, I mean, if you start a gun trading business, you're more likely to get the guns, but not get a building for yourself where to house them. It's absurd. Similarly, in another example, uh, there are certain regulations that are looked after by several ministries all at once. So in Mumbai, for example, if you want to open a bar, one ministry will tell you that you're supposed to have uh, the excise, uh, uh, the body that looks at excise duties. They will only want you to have one entrance so that they can see how much alcohol is being con consumed. But another ministry will want you to have multiple entrances so that uh, the infrastructure quality of the thing is good and people, it's not very crowded and everything. So regardless of what you do, you're breaking a law because one law requires you to have one entrance, another law requires you to have multiple entrance. Mm -hmm. So in India, there are a lot of these absurd laws which make no sense at all and they contradict each other. So no one can do anything. Mm -hmm. So the best way to do business is you have to pay people and there's corruption. We make a very bad thing out of corruption, but really what is corruption is citizens trying to get around the state because the state is useless and intrudes in their everyday life. Yeah, uh, yeah. as I was saying, yeah, I did not know about India. Uh, India's tax system was so weird and how the free market system is not, it's not necessarily free. There is no free market. In India, there is no free market. Yeah, go ahead. Crony capitalism, there's no free market. So what happens is, in India, there are certain sectors where certain industrialists are incentivized to do better, but the uh, entry to that industry is very difficult. So in the telecom industry, the ministry, because it is so, because the bureaucracy is so big in India, right? It's, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. They will make sure that only certain people that they have ties with who pay them well succeed. While other people who want to get into the industry will not be able to. So there is no competition, right? And you have a lot of these big corporations, big businesses doing everything. So it's, there's a lot of monopolies in India, but there's no free market, which is the exact opposite of free markets because right. ease of doing business is very difficult. But once you have a business, you can exploit everyone because you can uh, uh, just line the pockets of the government. And telecom industry is a very good example of this. So 
for you to enter the telecom industry is extremely difficult but once you have entered like look at what uh, is happening with jio mukesh ambani keeps getting richer even as india keeps getting poorer and there can be no new companies because mukesh ambani has insider access he can do whatever he wants so there's crony capitalism there's no free market those are two very different things in india markets are entirely fucked yeah that is unfortunate how did you get to that i mean <laughs> it's it's a series of blunders uh, first of all in india you started out with in a poor country we start out thinking that we have only in 1947 we had just become independent and so the thinking was india should have a self sufficient economy and no outside interest should come in because otherwise we would not be free because we would to economically depend on other people so there was a lot of protectionist uh, economic measures that were put in place so the there was imports were very few india did not want other businesses to come into india and even inside india the first prime minister jawaharlal nehru he uh, quoted to jrd tata once uh, who was a great industrialist uh, the uh, the founder of not the founder but i think the most major figure in the tata and sons enterprise which is many ways is everything that india has uh, is a very important part of the indian legacy so he told to jrd tata that do not talk to me do not mention the word profit to me it's a dirty word right so jawaharlal nehru had this very idealistic vision where the state drives progress in the country so he had gone to the soviet union previously and he was very inspired by the soviet economic strength not by the politics because he was a democrat at heart and he wanted people to be free so in that sense nehru was a great political leader because he was a firm believer in democracy and civil liberties but economically he wanted the government to control everything so the economy was planned right there was no there was no free market at all because the government wanted to plan where how much resources will be allocated which violates the very first principle of economics which is prices right Pe- consumer uh, supply and demand people will the market will automatically allocate resources by depending on what people want to consume so if i want to consume more of milk if milk demand is more then more people will try go into the milk business the government would decide but when the government decides for the development of the nation we don't need more milk we need more ice cream for instance the government will try to enforce that even when people don't want to buy ice cream and therefore there will be too much there will be a surplus of ice cream and not enough milk and therefore no one is happy it's a lose lose situation so india tried to have that planned economy model of development private enterprise is not allowed there were very few industries where there could be private players and for you to enter those you had to flee uh, you had to line a lot of pockets you had to have licenses right in a free market nobody needs a license to license. enter a business in india for you to start any business you had to get a license how do you get a license go to dozens of bureaucrats each one keeps sending you to their superior and you have to bribe all of them each step of the way so there would be no business right people would most happily just be like yeah we'll just depend on the state the state is doing everything and then the indian state tries to make everything the indian state tries to make condoms india has condom companies right uh, there is yeah so there is a uh, uh, nirod and there is mood both owned by the uh, indian government so, 
yeah the indian government produces uh, con uh, manufactures condoms the indian government manufacture uh, has uh, films it has airlines which government in the world owns an airlines of its own the indian airlines right air india it's running on so much loss they are laying off people they're not paying them and the government continues to hold on to it and i'll tell you uh, air india used to be tata airlines right so jrd tata had started it and india nationalized it india bought it from tatas and let be like no we cannot have private airlines in only the government will have full uh, i don't know like only the government can run airlines because we cannot let private uh, people take over something that is so important telecommunications was entirely owned by the government bsnl mtnl they opened up the telecommunication sector only in 1993 under the pv narasimha rao government before the uh, airlines were opened up similarly in 1990s under the pv narasimha rao government indian economy till 1990 1991 was entirely closed off it was like the soviet union it was very much a planned socialist economy but nothing worked and yet the good things about socialist economies are how much they focus on education and healthcare in india that did not happen we took the worst part of socialism which is no jobs and starvation and uselessness but we did not take the good part which is better healthcare better education take the state of kerala for instance in india it was the only state where land redistribution worked where uh, education is great where healthcare is great because there was actual investment done there in the planned economy across india what happened was india created these institutes like iits and iims but the basic education system of preschooling and schooling was entirely broken primary education till date in india is horrible if you are privileged enough and lucky enough to be born in a middle class family then you are great you have great opportunities in your life if you happen to be born in the hinterland in rural india then you are done education is bad healthcare is horrible and covid 19 is showing that to us even though india has done remarkably well Uh, and there are like not a lot of deaths it's being 25 26 27 thousand deaths which is a lot less than united states and brazil which are the first and second highest in the death toll yeah but healthcare system is bad there are not enough hospitals there's nothing so we did not develop infrastructure that is supposed to be developed under socialist economy all the while blocking uh, uh, private uh, open markets and private enterprise so in all ways it was bad then indira gandhi comes along and she makes it even worse she nationalized banks again right why should the state be in the banking business makes no sense right the state nationalized all banks and the state owned all banks and the state decided who should get loans and who should not that's absurd right yeah. and this so keeps happening yeah, yeah. It, it's crazy how the uh, the how the government has misdiagnosed the problem i i think how the government sort of looks at uh, our our problems across as far as corruption and uh, in ineffectiveness as far as whatever the processes is like oh well let's let's involve the government a little bit more let's take more control of the state <laughs> let's bring back the control of whatever sector that we've sort of given a little bit of freedom because something went wrong let's take back control by the state and that in and that just leads to even more problems because now we have corrupted people taking over a sector that was it was free before but now it's not anymore and that's crazy i did not know about how the the overreach of the state was into the market that is insane 
Yeah, it is. It's horrible in India. Plus, I mean, the very model of planned economy is sad, right? Because it's entirely broken from its basic. Because how can a bunch of bureaucrats sitting in Delhi be able to know what a farmer in Uttar Pradesh requires or a farmer in Kerala requires? It makes no sense. Because by definition, a human being has finite capacity for knowledge, and bureaucrats are not gods. Even if you have a bunch of them, they can only know finite things. Open markets work because they do not depend on an individual to make all the plans and choices. Open markets work because they're spontaneous. You decide what you want, and if I can sell it to you, then we do business. And everyone keeps doing that, and everyone is better off. That's the fundamental of open market, right? So it's basic exchange. That way, you don't have to know a lot of things. You only know what you want, and you know who has it. That's all you need to know. If you want to plan an entire economy, you have to know what every single person wants, what is good for the nation, and who can sell it. That's a lot of information, and the state cannot do it because it's impossible. And when the state tries to do it, it is tyranny. You will starve. The government will just tell you what to do. It, you you will not be allowed to have children. In the emergency, they during the emergency in India, 1975 to 1977, they forced. Silly sterilized millions of people because they decided that India should not be Indian should not be having more children. That's just like that's what happens when you try to plan an economy. You think you know best and people don't. That's just sad because everyone knows what their self-interest is. You are nobody to decide it, even if you are the state. Simple as that. But uh, don't you don't you think that in in the event of a free market libertarian society? There could be abuse of, let's say, by corporations as far as regulations go. So let's say a construction company were to build something, and then they, and let's say the standard is a three beam wall, and then they decide it's cheaper for us to build a one beam wall, and then and they go on to build one beam walls, and you have weak houses and that just collapse. So where do you think the government's role in there, there, to intervene yeah. and decide a standard? Yeah, there are government. There, there must be, which is why we have the state, right? The state is there in order to do certain things. So of course, there should be regulations, but the regulations should be, for example, uh, about the wall, right? So the government must know for sure what is the minimum strength of the wall that that can be done, and make sure that whenever someone tries to, like, whenever you have a regulation. Builders will have to get I don't know, like security clearances or whatever from you. Make sure that the process is hassle-free. Of course, certain regulations are required. Of course, uh, I mean, for example, you cannot have sec- uh, national security compromises even if you are doing business because defense is a very important thing and national security is a very important thing. Similarly, the government is there to ensure that uh, there is law and order maintained. So the government has important things to do and it should do those things. What it should not do is try to tell everyone what to do. Have minimum requirements, sure, but make sure those minimum requirements are only minimum requirements. They are not what you think should be the way. So the best way, for example, is to see what sort of houses. For example, in uh, Mumbai, right? If you have some absurd law about housing, and in Mumbai this is a big problem because ha, property rates are very high in Mumbai because. Apparently, land is very little. So in India, the, they have uh, a limit to how tall buildings can be, right? In Mumbai, they have a limit to how tall buildings can be. 
right. the ceiling is very less there's a technical term for mm-hmm. it i forget uh, and this, and like you cannot have buildings very high in mumbai and you don't have any land in mumbai and that's an absurd regulation in new york right uh which also in very many ways is similar to mumbai because it is also a bunch of islands and uh, around the sea which you know bunch of islands um, uh, sure. that were mixed together like brought together in order to make a city out of it mm-hmm. in a very similar state it has a maximum uh, ceiling capacity that is multiple times higher than mumbai so you can right. what that does is buildings can be taller so more people can live in mm-hmm. a given an amount of space without it being anyone's problem today what happens is there is not enough space but you can't build buildings higher up because of some absurd reason and then no one has a place to live and they have to go and live in slums right so mm-hmm. that way property rates will also come down in mumbai right if you take away that ceiling if buildings can be as high as they want to be because it does, there is no correlation to suggest that if a building is taller it suddenly becomes weaker because it has been done everywhere in the world it has been done in hong kong in dubai in new york it can be done in mumbai the thing is are you willing to do it or are you just going to tell people what you want them to live like then then it's just absurd and that's just one thing so there are many of these arbitrary regulations in certain places in india there have been uh, in delhi there is arbitrary regulations of how big a house has to be so you have to have a uh, have some place for a driveway or something in india no one has a driveway most people don't even have cars right. so these are right. third regulations take away too much land that no one requires you know even in apartments you have too much land that is not required and no one uses it around it for gardens or driveways when you don't require driveways in india and those regulations just waste a lot of land and mm. make sure that everything is more expensive and no one can afford it so a lot of these bad regulations come from the fact that the state does not know what its function is and its function is to ensure the bare minimum that everyone is safe and things go well so that everyone does not start killing each other that's literally all the state is supposed to do the state is not supposed to provide you with food or anything because that's not the state's responsibility the state should ensure that everyone is provided uh, like food is, is does not become like a luxury that is the state's responsibility but the state should not feed you the state should only facilitate the production of food right the and i think the indian state mistakes its role as a facilitator as one that has to do everything you don't have to do everything you just have to facilitate it that's a very different role just make it easier simply do you do you think change is afoot in india uh i don't no i don't think so actually because even though when uh, narendra modi's government came into power in 2014 a lot of people thought that this is going to be the time when india's markets will finally open up and the state will roll itself back and all that and modi himself said uh, minimum government and maximum governance which means which is a very republican thing to say right and everyone thought yes we have free market we're going to have free markets that india will grow very very much but that did not not happen uh, in gujarat when he was chief minister he did that in gujarat gujarat is a manufacturing hub now so everyone thought he can do that across the uh, across india but he did not what instead happened is today india has import barriers so in in india the import tariff is huge india does not want to import anything because we want to be a self sustainable market 
country, which is exactly what Jawaharlal Nehru did in 1947. And when you try to have a self, and this idea of self-sustainable industry comes again from a misunderstanding of economics. You don't understand what trade is. Why is the trade deficit wrong? A country does something better than you and you pay them money for it. And your consumers are better off because they can buy it cheaply. It does not make any sense for you to incentivize a less efficient production in your country, say of smartphones, because you don't want Chinese smartphones in India. So the average consumer has to pay, say, 100 rupees more, and that same 100 rupees they could have used somewhere else. Similarly, in India, even as the global oil prices are continue, continuing to decrease, in India they're increasing because three-fourths of the oil price in India is taxation. India has so many taxes on oil that even as oil prices keep on decreasing, in India, oil prices are increasing, both petrol and diesel. Absurd. So that is the very opposite of a free market. And you have high import duties and you don't want to let people do business. Last year, the government fined Airtel uh, around 13,000 crores because it, uh, because it did not pay a nominal fee. So if you, and this was some 20 times that fee amount, and that's just absurd, right? Why would people want to do business in a country where you have, you ex extort them so much? And if people do not do business, then there would be no jobs. And then our economy will continue to languish as a developing nation for another hundred years. Simple as that. Yeah, that is unfortunate. Uh, yeah, I did not know about what the, the general state of India was. I was I've always kind of been disconnected from the Indian politics in a while. It's only been very recently that I started to get into economics and what uh, world affairs were. But I've never bothered to look in India. But that is very interesting. I didn't realize. Well, it should have been telling when Jawaharlal Nehru first decided to state state India as a democratic socialist country. I mean, he was heavily influenced by Karl Marx and as you said yourself, Soviet Union, but you would think that it would, so there would be some progress in the last 70 years, but it sort of just regressed into more a, a state controlled nation. No, there has been progress. India is, no, in many ways, India is much better than 1947, but the progress is not as good as that could have been. And it could have been much better. In India, yes, in, I mean, at independence, India's uh, life expectancy on average is 31. Today, it is 66. So that's a huge leap. Uh, less women die at childbirth, much less. Infectious diseases are much better. So in many ways, India has done better. The per capita income has gotten much worse. But it took us so long to do it because till 1991, India was not great. Much of these changes have happened post-1991 when India finally opened itself up to markets, to the world market. And that was because India had a crisis. India did not have enough money at all. We were at the brink of bankruptcy. So India was forced to open its economy. And only then could India become what it is today. So, yes, India has made progress, but not as good as, not as much as it should have. Because it, there's a statistic in 1949. China's per capita income was less than India. Today, China's per capita income is five times that of India. And they're a communist country. Right? They are supposed to have free protected markets. And yet in China, the markets are very free, freer than India at least. And India is a democratic nation. 
and India does not have anything. So how did China become so powerful when both of us started at the same place and India continues to languish? That's the question that needs to be asked. Do you think it's because uh, a lot of the uh, manufacturing powers were sort of exported to China? Because, because Chinese, because they, I mean, as I said, for you to allow people to come, how will manufacturing grow? Only when you, there is an ease of business, right? Only when there are manufacturing firms, only when companies can come in and do something. But if you have such a bureaucracy that does not allow you to do anything, then it's very difficult. In China, they allowed that to happen. Deng Xia, under Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese economy opened up a lot. Then uh, after Deng Xiaoping, uh, under his successors, Jiang Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao and now uh, Xi Jinping, China continues to be an open marketplace. It's not as open as anyone would like to, obviously. China is a very absurd nation in that sense because there's an entire information firewall. So no one actually knows what goes on. But if people are willing to do business in China, there must be something about it because Nobody wants to do business in India. Even people actually thought that after this coronavirus crisis, all the companies that move out from China will come to India because India is a large market. That did not happen. All the companies went to Vietnam because in Vietnam, it's much easier to do business. In India, it's not. India could have had a lot more jobs than it actually does now because none of the companies that, was, that left China came to India. They all went to Vietnam. So India has a lot of thinking to do economically because our economic mindset has been wrong. Even today, they, we are trying to become a uh, uh, self-sufficient economy, which is absurd. You do think that you're good at And if you want to become a self-sufficient economy, you don't start by banning all products. You start by asking more people to invest so that your manufacturing powers increase. You can't arbitrarily just ask people to, to even when they are bad and more expensive. Once again, the state expects the citizens to bail itself out. That's stupid. So that's, I, I don't know. That's, it's extremely exasperating more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah I bad public policy. Uh, bad public policy. Yeah, no. Yeah, you, uh, yeah, it's, that was very informative. I'm not, not going to lie. Uh, I definitely learned a lot. I was thinking, so if you, if you still want, I, do you, would you, let's, Sort of switch topics here and go to, um, I guess more philosophical. The, the the more interesting topic for me really is. So I was reading Viktor Frankl, um, the Man's Search for Meaning, and I did that because I actually saw it as one of your book recommendations recently, and it's always been sort of on my book list. And I figured, oh, I might as well read it now. So I did read Man's Search for Meaning, and he sort of so Victor sort of uh, put out the he came in with a school of psychotherapy called logotherapy, which is where he he addresses almost all problems of uh, of uh, that all of I guess a better way to put it, he sort of diagnoses most mental illnesses or as far as anything that is beyond that is anything that is precursor to neurosis as uh, literally a lack of meaning for people. What do you think? What do you think is the role of meaning in in, in a person's life? Um, I think 
I think meaning is central actually to the human existence because, and this is, I mean, been a central thesis in existential philosophy. And in many ways, what Viktor Frankl does is he takes existential philosophy and brings it to psycho psychology. So he tries to apply it uh, to apply it in order to actually make the lives of people better. So in the existential tradition, meaning has always been important because they look at human existence as something where, so I mean, humans are very different from any other animal, right? Because no other animal tries to ask the question why, and meaning lies in the question why, right? Because if you can ask the question why, you can always ask the question why, even if there is no why. So they did a, a research study on five-year-old children. And what they found was even in young children, if you show them uh, images of certain shapes of rock, they will come around with an explanation as to why it is so. So the rock is shaped in such a way so that uh, the river can flow across it. Or uh, a tree is built in a certain way so that birds can live in it. So even in children as young as that, they also recognize that some there always has to be some reason for why things are and no other animals i don't think a dog questions itself and asking why do i exist at all but humans do and humans always have even when we lived in caves humans asked the question why am i here why did i take birth right and it is a very pertinent question and that is where meaning comes from because we have this inherent need for meaning we want to know why and yet most of the things in life are meaningless and this is a contradiction pointed out by albert camus right uh, and camus said that there is a fundamental contradiction in the human condition which is that humans have an inherent need for meaning and yet yeah. the world outside is entirely meaningless it's, it's absurd right and this sort of absurdity is the reason why we are so sad in our lives, which is why we have so much misery because we are unable to find meaning in things we do. For example, if you are a computer scientist and you write some code or something and you just don't find any meaning in it, it's just a bunch of bullshit. They'll make some software that will do something which does not affect you or matter to you, matter to you in any way. They'll give you a fatter paycheck, yeah. but what, what are you going to do with it? Because after a certain point, if the more money you get, it does not increase your happiness. To a certain point, money correlates with happiness because uh, your children can go to better schools or you can live more comfortably. But after a certain point, you don't need that much, that much money because mm -hmm. the extra money just goes into, I don't know, you invest in stocks or you uh, buy some car that you don't need uh, uh, and just you have a midlife crisis and you yeah. try to spend money on prostitutes and stuff like that. Yeah. So there is has to be a meaning to what you're doing, which is why in the industrial world, even though uh, what happened was people started living longer, people were more prosperous because of the industrial revolution, there was also a sense of alienation because people no longer felt like their work had any meaning. If you are a person in a car manufacturing company in the assembly line and your entire job for eight hours, nine hours a day is to, uh, I don't know, put place a hubcap in a car. It's absurd, it's boring as fuck, right? Why there's no meaning in that. And 
people would be tormented even though it pays them much better than uh, they were paid when they were farmers it still does not bring them that much satisfaction because if you are a farmer you put in a lot more effort you get your crops you feel good about it but here you are putting hubcaps for a company that you don't know and they are going to take away all the money and they'll pay you something you don't really feel the need to do anything for yourself there's no meaning in it and that's also the central thesis of karl marx but marx says it is the problem of capitalism but albert camus albert camus and uh, and victor frankl and everyone else says it is not a problem of capitalism or socialism or anything no political system can solve it because people will always have to find meaning this is a problem of the human nature that humans want meaning under capitalism also you, you can do, people do jobs that are meaningful a lot of people for example who become teachers become teachers because they want to a lot of them find joy in their work so under socialism there are a lot of jobs that are entirely meaningless so this is a problem of human nature humans have to always explain to themselves why they are doing something which is why humans lie no other animal lies lying i think is the way humans make sense to themselves so we have self preservation mm-hmm. so that you don't contradict yourself so that you can explain to yourself why you're doing it so for example if i'm doing something very boring like uh, uh, i don't know proofreading some stupid document which is extremely boring looking at punctuation marks i'll still explain to myself that no i need the money they are going to pay me money so i'm doing it so people have to explain to themselves constantly why they do it and that's why i think victor frankl's uh, thesis is actually a very good one uh, because as he points out in the book the jews that could find meaning in their suffering were more likely to survive uh, the concentration camps than the ones that did not so if you do not if you think that whatever is happening to you is meaningful and it adds to your personality or life experience then things will get better and that is very important because as i think i because i think alienation alienation is a perpetual pandemic and even though all problems in the world might be solved people will always be alienated because we will always be doing things that we don't find meaning in and it will just continue to be what is meaning also i remember uh, you asked me when talking about the automation thing and yes. the universal basic income thing you asked me a find a question about what is going to happen when uh, everyone has money and like is paid do you think they're going to sit at home yeah. yeah i i forgot to answer that because i was talking i was ranting about yeah, india yeah, 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 yeah. sorry about that so no, no okay. i think this meaning crisis might get worse or it might get better depending on how it pans out right mm. people might actually no longer feel alienated because they will no longer have, be compelled to work uh so that they can feed themselves because everyone will get money for sustenance right. so they can actually do things that they want to so artistic ex- expression might take take over so more people will become artists without the fear of failure right. more people will become entrepreneurs because they will actually want if they are driven by something they are passionate about something they can actually do it without the risk of them thinking i'll have to starve if this fails and i can't risk all of it So in that sense, people's sense of meaning might increase, in alienation might decrease. But on the other hand, if uh, automation plays out in such a way where we have great inequality, where sort only certain people get the benefits of their life, of benefits of automation, 
then there'll be more alienation, there'll be more social strife, as I said, and there'll be a civil war in advanced nations. Right. I, yeah, yeah, I agree with, with most of what you said, uh, but it still leaves the question. See, I, I love Albert Camus' uh, absurd philosophy more than existentialism because I feel like he sort of uh, comes to a more accurate representation of what the human condition is. So he recognizes that there is no intrinsic yeah. meaning to life or our existence, but there is an inherent yeah. need for us to want meaning. And so that he, he, cl he calls that yeah. the absurd. Um, so then the question becomes, yeah. what is meaning? Condition. Uh, as I said, it's a, it's a personal thing, right? So we are all wired to think of meaning in different ways. For me, meaning could be uh, being religious. For a lot of pe people, they find meaning in religion, which is also why religion plays an important role, which is also why I think the, the way people dismiss religion as a source of evil or, or something irrational is very wrong because religion is does not do the role of uh, role that science does. Religion is not that explain the world. That's only fundamentalists that actually believe that. I mean, the Bible says the world was created 3,000 years ago. Yeah. The world was actually created 3,000 years ago. Very few people actually believe that. For most people, religion is a way in which you can have emotional therapy. Right? For them, it is a way to understand the world around them, understand people's motives, and make sense of, sense of their own suffering. So there is a quote uh, I came up with, which is, if your son is sick, you go to a doctor. If your son is dead, you go to God, right? Or like you pray to God. So when things can still be done, if you go, like if, if uh, you're sick and you can be cured, if you start praying to God, that's just stupid. But if someone close to you dies and you have to cope with that, and it's very difficult for us to cope with death, religion is a very important way in which people find solace in it. And I wrote an article about it uh, recently, about how important religion is religion to human source, society and how... Religion is a source of meaning, yeah. I did read that, yeah. Meaning, but, yeah. Because we have, because we have an inherent uh, need for meaning and religion was the first thing that provided it. Right. Now people find meaning in other things. Uh, political ideology is one of those things. And which is why I think a lot of political narratives are in a sense religious right uh, when for least. example yeah yeah they're dogmatic so they have that aspect but also they give that religious experience to people that transcendent feeling religion is transcendental right so yeah. the way i would define meaning is it's a feeling of transcendence where you can look at yourself from a bullseye perspective and smile and feel good about yourself so you can distance yourself from what you're doing and feel and still feel good about it. And religion allows that and political ideology today allows that. So when people make their entire la entire personality or entire life about what their political beliefs are, if they are say a Marxist and Marxism is a model that explains the entire world, then you can very clearly see how it's a religion because there is that sense of community. So you call each other comrades and you all talk about the same things. You wear, you wear similar clothes, just like religious people do. There's a sense of community. You all communicate in the same language, talk about the same right. 
there is a holy book in the middle, which is capital. And in Christians, this is a Bible. So that's taken care of. There's a prophet, Jesus. And here's another prophet, Karl Marx. Right? And there's a way in which Christianity explains the world, which is through suffering. And there's a way in which uh, Karl Marx explains the world, which is through oppression. So it's exactly the same thing. It's a yeah. secular religion. So instead of a supernatural explanation to things, you come up with an economic explanation to things. But that explanation does not matter because the feeling it evokes in you is just the same. So the explanation can be anything. So if you, even if you take Christianity and replace all the supernatural elements with strictly human physical science laws, even then people might still have those transcendental feelings purely because the transcendental feeling does not depend on the explanation. It depends on how convinced you are with that explanation. So Marxists are entirely convinced that their way of looking at the world is correct. And that's why they have all of these experiences whenever for example uh, america does something wrong they jump to it saying that we know it because the american capitalist imperialist system is wrong blah 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 right, right, and right. that this is supposed to happen america is an inherently racist country and you just find ways to explain the entire world just like religious people find explanations for the world just like something happens they will say that god did this to you because you were sinners marxists will say it happened to america because america is an oppressive nation so right. it's just the same thing so humans will always have the inherent need for meaning and religion provides that meaning. It's just the religion keeps changing. So earlier it was a supernatural religion. Today it's a secular religion called political ideology. You think so? Do you think a person can live without meaning? I mean, I don't think so. One can live without religious meaning. So in some ways you can go beyond that. So religion is a specific structure through which you find meaning. There are uh, personalized forms of meaning as well. So say, as I said, in political ideology, it's a structure that allows you to find meaning. So it's easy, but you can live without religion of all kinds, without political religion, without even um, supernatural religion, as many people do, but you still need meaning. So that meaning has to come from somewhere. So if you don't find meaning in uh, politics or in God, you will start finding meaning in your relationship with other people. That's why people, uh, uh, that's why relationships are the most important thing. In a study done uh, that, uh, a, a, a study done by Harvard asked the question, what is it that makes people happy the most, right? And the, and the most important answer was, uh, and the most important trait was healthy relationships. So if you have long lasting relationships with people that you love, who are constantly there for you, that's a form of meaning. People find meaning in children. People find meaning in their careers. Right? So people will continue to find meaning in several things. And without meaning, you can't, you can't live without meaning. Like as, as Camus says, the need for meaning is so inherent that one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Sisyphus has to find meaning in rolling up a boulder up a hill only to see it watch it slide down. It's the worst kind of job you can imagine. And yet he has to find meaning in it because without it, he'll just kill himself. He'll just die. And he can't die because he's already dead. So he, he has been for eternity he has to do the same thing. So might as well just lie to himself saying that I'm happy. That's the form of meaning. It might look sad to everyone else, but if he is okay with it, then we are nobody to judge Sisyphus because we all do that to ourselves as well. We keep telling ourselves that this is good, this is meaningful, because otherwise 
life is full of suffering and very bleak and we can't take it yeah uh albert camus uh albert camus is very interesting in his book the myth of sisyphus in fact he 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 sort of sees suicide as the greatest tragedy of, of mankind right because one one chooses to the ultimate problem the ultimate yeah. problem he calls it right yeah. so but i sort of see the myth uh, as a, like i sort of see this as sisyphus from a different way this I, i i agree one must imagine sisyphus happy but i don't see, i don't see happiness and meaning as the same thing so how i look at it is miss sisyphus can be happy in what he does not necessarily because he draws meaning from it but because he has to be happy there is no other way besides being happy which is different from actual meaning that's what i come to so in just as much as how irrational the inherent need for meaning and no, no intrinsic meaning to life he has to convince himself if the world is irrational i too have to be irrational in the sense that i have to love what i'm doing not necessarily is meaningful because he, he could still come to the conclusion because i could still in the sense i could still come come to the conclusion me rolling this rock up the hill for eternity just so it can come down i have to just be ha- just do it and be happy but it means nothing then the sense that because i see a meaning as as something that entails an outcome an outcome of whatever as you might call it like transcendent uh uh feeling or some form of pleasure or what but i also think without that outcome meaning literally sort of becomes nothing right so i guess in that sense i guess you could call it a little bit nihilistic but because because nihilism said there's no point in trying to draw meaning but i say it's like it's not necessarily true but i still think one can live without meaning no i i what i think of this is actually the problem of definition how you like to define meaning and happiness because intrinsically the feel- feeling it evokes and the explanations we want are the same regardless of what we want to call it so how i look at it is meaning is the explanation to what you are doing and happiness is what the feeling that explanation evokes so people can find meaning in sadness as well so if you can explain to yourself why you are sad and it might make you feel sadder that's still meaning in a sense right and a lot of people find meaning in their suffering for example yeah. uh, most of art most art is a sort of finding meaning in suffering vincent van gogh is like the cliche example for that but it's 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 a very true example so meaning essentially is explaining your actions to yourself or explaining the circumstances of your life to yourself why am i like this why is this happening to me as i said in the very beginning humans want reasons for why things are as they are so if this is asking the ask himself the question why am i condemned to do this and he answers himself that because i sinned in my past life so i have to do this in order to as penance in order to redeem myself then he is explaining to himself what he is doing and that explanation might provide him with happiness or sadness so i think what kamu means by one must imagine sisyphus happy is sisyphus has no other option because it's his internal condition that he wants to find meaning and yet he is unable to find it so he has to imagine himself that imagine himself to be 
be happy. So yes, it is kind of nihilistic, which is where a lot of people think that it is an extremely nihilistic, that, that, uh, I don't think it's like, all the way nihilistic, yeah. In, in some way, it can be looked at in a nihilistic manner. And, and it is true, because, but that is just in the case of Sisyphus. It's not in our case, because Sisyphus has no other option and is condemned to that for eternity. We are not, right? At some point, we'll die. So in that sense, we can still choose to do something. So when you're eternal, you can, most things will not have meaning. So I think what Camus was trying to prove with that example was we should not be eternal because eternity is the ultimate lack of meaning. Because when you have infinite amount of time, you can do whatever and there's yeah. no cost or benefit to it. You can do whatever with your life. And if if you can do whatever, there's no need to. There is no need for you to explain why you're doing it, because you will say, "I have the entire time in the world. I will never die, so I can do whatever I choose to do." Meaning and explanation. The need for explanation comes only because we have finite times in our life, finite lifetimes, right? Yeah. So I could be doing something else currently. Yet I'm doing a certain thing current uh, uh, right now. So why am I doing this? I have to explain right. it to myself because I do not have infinite time. I have only say 60 years to live and I'm already, I've already spent 21 years of them, of those uh, 60. And so what I choose to do with the rest of my life, every single moment has to be a cost benefit analysis, which is very difficult, which is why people randomly start doing things and then try to explain to themselves, why, why are we doing this? So if you have an eternal life, you would know there is no need for meaning. So in that sense, you are correct that Sisyphus does not have any meaning. And it is possible to live without meaning, but it is only possible to live without meaning when you are eternal, which is why it's the worst thing. I'm very afraid of eternity. I especially like the example of Sisyphus because it flies in the face of the idea of hell. So if Sisyphus can be happy, then we can all be happy in hell. Yeah. So I love that, I love that example. That's just yeah. one thing, so, so, Hell after death isn't as scary anymore, at least for me. And I hope people who listen to this, hell isn't scary people, you can draw meaning from it. No, for me it is scarier because you have to do the same thing all over, over <laughs> and over and over again. And as I said, for eternity, and eternity is the scariest thing. And I think Camus was also pointing to this fact that when you have eternal, you have eternal lives, there's no reason. There's no point, which is why he is against suicide, right? Which is why he says people should not kill themselves and instead manufacture their own meaning because life is worth living. You have a certain life uh, and you, after you live it, you're dead. So make sure that all the choices you make are worth it. Make sure that in whatever you do, you try to manufacture meaning. So ma meaning is not inherent. It has to be manufactured. It has to be a process. You have to constantly try every single second to explain to yourself why you're doing it, which is why people say life is too short to do meaningless bullshit, right? To do things that you hate. So yeah. make sure that you do things that will make you feel good about yourself and that will allow you to answer your answer to yourself the question, why are you doing, why are you doing this currently? Um, yeah, see, I, I disagree with Albert Camus on that point of uh, suicide necessarily being a bad thing, because I don't, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. I always see it as a, a necessary evil, depending on, on the individual. If they see, if they see fit, to want to kill themselves, 
yeah. by like I, I, yeah. provided they do the proper analysis and they see the pain is the suffering is much greater than the possible pleasure, then they might as well kill themselves. Yeah. Obviously, that's not a prescription. I don't want anyone to kill themselves because. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. But yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. In a sense, you can argue that data is autonomous. Like people should have the right to kill themselves. But the problem with suicide happens with the fact that it is not just your life, right? Because what you do with your life also influences Excellent. people around you. Mm. Plus, it is so there are multiple things to it, which is why suicide is a very slippery slope to go down on, and. Right. Which is why people constantly try to make sure that suicide rates are down and people are able to live healthier lives. But in countries, and in, what happens is in more heavily industrialized nations, the rates of suicide are higher because of this yeah. lack of meaning, right? Because people yeah. don't find the meaning, uh, meaning in their life. So there is no suffering more than, like, the worst kind of suffering is boredom, right? The worst kind of suffering is meaninglessness. So even if you're constantly sad and things are going bad in your life, you can still explain to yourself why this is happening to you. And those kinds of suicide are less. For example, uh, somebody uh, robbed me entirely, so I have nothing left in my life. I have no money, so I'll kill myself because there's no way out. Those right. things happen. But more people are likely to kill themselves because they have they are mentally ill for a long, long amount of time, over long periods of time because they cannot understand what is happening to them, what is happening to their lives, and they don't understand why they are alive and why they are living their life as they are. So most suicide comes from depression. Most people don't just impulsively kill themselves because something went wrong with their life. No, suicide is extremely not. complex, right? <laughs> exactly, suicide is, suicide is extremely complex and it, it's a culmination of a long, long attempt to fail, uh, long, long attempt to find meaning and feeling so you don't understand why your life is like that and with depression that is extremely accurate because depression is the state of it's not so much suffering as just perpetual fatigue you just don't know what is happening around you you don't want to do anything you are just in this state of limbo of great lethargy and nothing makes sense to you so you might as well just die you know yeah so in that sense yeah. in that sense yes yeah, this has been great, by the way. Where do you live? Where do you live? Uh, so I live. Okay, <laughs> so I went to college in Bangalore. Uh, yeah. Graduated this year. Right. Yeah, with Tanya. Okay. Uh, but currently, because of the entire COVID nineteen crisis, I'm with my parents in um, Bhubaneswar because uh, college was over, so I came back. Oh, so and you're. I'm living you're... in Bhubaneswar. You're originally from Orissa then? Yeah, I'm from Orissa. Oh, okay, uh, nice. So I have moved back here with my parents. So. Nice. Yeah. And after the thing gets, like, after the situation eases, I'll go back to Bangalore. Oh, okay. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this has been great. Where do you live? I live in Canada. So I'm in Canada. Um, I'm originally oh. from Canada. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you yeah, are you're in Toronto, Montreal. I am in uh, I I'm in a city called Guelph. It's a little away from Toronto. So yeah, uh, I I uh, work are you here. In college? No, I work here. I work for a university oh. here. So, uh, and I've got a lot of free time on my hands. Oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a 
what I'm a lab tech slash chemist and I test milk for all of Canada, all of Ontario, all of our province. So yeah, I'm a, oh, good. that's a cool job. Yeah, it's all right. It's uh, it's a lot of data driven, a lot of stats, a lot of, uh, a lot of chemistry, a lot of days where you want to bang your head on the table because you can't figure stuff out. Uh, but I'm sure, but I'm sure it's better than writing code, right? <laughs> uh, he, I don't know. I have to write. Sometimes I have to write code too. So, um, so I'm back. Yeah. 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 I'm. Yeah. It's 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 nice. Um, I like working for a university. Uh, it's a lot of learning experience for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've known Tanya for a while now. She and I we went to the same high school, in Kerala, and then oh. yeah. But but yeah. I think yeah, and then she moved to Bangalore and then. Yeah, so I, I moved here. So, yeah, this is what I do now. I mean, I got a lot, get a lot of free time on my hands, and I've wanted to start a podcast for a long time now. And and I just. When did you graduate? I graduated in 20, 2019. 2019. Yeah, I graduated in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same, I'm the same age as Tanya. I don't know how old you are, but. I'm 20. I turned 22 this year. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this has been great. Thank you for doing this. Um, the episode will be, it'll, there will be a little bit of a delay in when this episode goes up. So um, I'd say maybe three weeks from now, three or four weeks from now, just because I am still working through stuff. I have I've recorded two more episodes. So this will hopefully be uh, you'll be interested to know that my first episode is actually kind of the opposite of what we talked today. It's more socialist. Um, I have someone, yeah, uh. <laughs> it's, it's more socialist centric. Uh, my first person that I had, Amrita Faustin, she's amazing. She's great, but uh, she's very anti-established. And I'm a, like, we talk about right-wing populism and the rights of right-wing populism in general, but uh, she, she and I, we have sort of the shared hatred towards uh, the establishment, um, the media establishment, the top one percent, whoever decides to screw over the general population. Um, uh, so, yeah. Anyway, this has been great. Thank you for doing this. Um, hopefully, I can have you on like later on uh, after uh, when yeah, sure. when topics come up, or if you want to talk about something, um, let me know. Because um, yeah. you don't know what the uh, I don't know how what your prolonged theme for your podcast might be, but I have anything goes on my podcast. So there have been the so the first three episodes do generally have a like a general theme to it, but uh, the, my further episodes are gonna be about memes, music, and whatnot. So if really anything goes so let me do let me know if you want to come back on for sure oh before yeah. i end i just want to quote something i thought it'd be pretty cool to quote nietzsche um so nietzsche said infamously said he who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow and that's it <laughs> yeah. um thank you very much for having me yeah absolutely. thank you for doing this this has been great um Oh, also, if you don't know the name of the podcast, it's called The Trist with Vinay. Okay. Trist with? Vinay. I'm Vinay, so I'm just Trist with Vinay. Oh, yeah. Trist with Vinay. Nice. 
Awesome. Great. Thank you. Uh, I will let you go now. Bye. Yeah. Bye.